Welcome to Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. And on Odd Trilogies, we take a trio of films where they're tied by cast, crew, thematic elements, directors, etc. And we talk about the good, the bad, and the weird surrounding all three of those films. <sighs> Get a little yawn out of there. I could, <laughs> Logan's I could never, excited. I could never... It's not even that. It's more the fact that like, I think when I just am in the zone of like getting the intro out... Because yeah. when my brain is like, okay, now it's time for you to yawn. Yeah, right. Because this... your brain turns off because you're doing it out. You're saying it out of habit. Yeah. It's already muscle memory. Yeah, so it's cause... like your brain's like, all right, I'm an autopilot now. Let's get some extra oxygen in if, here. If I was a glutton for punishment, I'd look back on the the last years we've done this and just be like, there's at least 10 times I've done that. <laughs> just unintentionally, not trying to sound yeah. like, oh, this is what the trilogy is going to be like today. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've now, you. I think about it when I watch like, YouTubers and they always have the same sign off at the end. You yes. Know, like fucking Jeremy Johns or something. Yes. You know, his little sign off subscribe thing. And now, you know, it's like, you're there. You've, you've achieved that. <laughs> I've achieved that. it. Yeah. And I will also acknowledge that that was the opening to this was not even entirely verbatim what I have no, been yeah. doing. Just change it up a little bit on accident. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, today we are talking about a trilogy that I suggested. To each other, I actually suggested this trilogy to Andy, saying they uh, this company that we're talking about today started and ended in January. That is not the case. <laughs> I was completely wrong on both end and start dates, <laughs> except for the dates themselves. Like except for the years, yeah. I got those right, but it was the actual months that <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, today we are talking about the rise and fall of Fox Animation Studios. Mm-hmm. And you're probably wondering what the fuck that means. Yeah. And it's understandable because Fox Animation Studio was founded in 1994 and then defunct by 2000. Yeah. So the three films we're talking about today are literally the three films that this studio made. The only three made. films, the only three films that this studio made, which are 1997's Anastasia, 1999's Bar Talk the Magnificent, yes. and 2000's titan ae which means we are really chronicling the arc of an entire studio which uh, a, yes. a very very quick rise and fall yeah. um of a not exactly powerhouse mm-hmm. um studio and there are two reasons i mean actually no thinking about it now there are three reasons why i thought it'd be fun to do this one i do think back in terms of the episodes we've done in the past i really liked when we did the fall of 2d dreamworks years mm-hmm. back yeah i love looking at animation studios and looking at kind of the process as to what they end up releasing, as well as kind of like the critical reception and like, you know, that DreamWorks conversation is like, God dang it, I've <laughs> got it again. Almost sneezed. Yes, but no, but it's basically just interesting to see like why those films technically failed at the yeah. time. And with the 2D well, and DreamWorks. The, the often tumultuous process. Yes. Like pre-production and or production process mm-hmm. of... of animated films especially oh my god at the end of kind of the the 2d wave yeah unfortunately i mean there we have others that are in the same kind of genre per subgenre per se of like odd trilogies that i'm excited to talk about in the future when we know you have like a a weekend where it's like oh we don't know if anything ties into this month let's try let's talk about this yeah but ultimately with this one you'll see a lot of the same issues as the 2d dreamworks and i would say even in a smaller scale yeah because the thing about 2d dreamworks is the fact that like while those films were failing quote-unquote financially they still had some good critical reception 
yeah. DreamWorks' 3D outfits were doing incredibly well. So, of course, yeah. DreamWorks wasn't failing as a company. Just a certain subsection of attempts right. were not working as well as the others. Fox Animation Studios, on the other hand, have three films. And by the time that third film is out, it's pretty much dead on arrival. <laughs> because they pretty much had to pull back <laughs> marketing because of costs. They had to lay off people. Yeah. leading up to the release of the last the film. So to really put it into perspective, the Fox Animation Studios was created in 1994 by... 30 years ago. Yes. 30 years since the founding. One of the main reasons why I want to do this as well, because it is 30 years since the founding, Yeah, and we love animation. But the third reason why I want to talk about this is because one of the founders of Fox Animation Studios is the legendary animator Don Bluth. Mm-hmm. Who many would know from their Disney days. He did a lot of animation work for Disney, you know, pretty much up until I think 1979 is when he left Disney. And then from that point forward, most people would know him from Secret of Nim, Land Before yeah. Time, American Tale, Thumbelina. Yeah, All Dogs Go to Heaven, as well as if you're if you're a gamer out there, <laughs> he did the trio of Dragon's Lair, Space oh, yeah. Ace, Dragon's yeah. Lair 2, Time Warp, full motion animated video games. Um so he is a legendary animator that from like the 80s onward was basically an independent contractor. And pretty much this trilogy is also an inadvertently like the end of Bluth as a director. Quote unquote end because it's less yeah. that he can't do it. It's more like he's it's it's seems like it's pretty much he's tired. <laughs> yeah. I mean he's old. He's an old man. I think yeah. he's late 70s, early 80s. And he is clearly done a lot of great stuff but up until the early 2000s is kind of touch and go depending on the projects yeah well and and in the 90s he's i mean it's this era is notable because it's kind of for a brief flash in the pan kind of one rare instance of somebody actually kind of showing some competition to disney yes yes who is like at the the zenith of 2d animation in the 90s you know with all of Anybody who's around our age is just, you know, raised on that stuff. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. And, like, yeah. we have, we, to clarify too, if you, we do have other Bluth trilogies in the pocket for later. I mean, yeah, I think there's sure. a lot to talk about this man because this man has a very long, storied, and interesting career. And it just so happened that, unfortunately, the first trilogy we were talking about on <laughs> this kind of... is the last studio he really fully worked with. Yeah. In kind of a, creation sense well in the last features that he directed indeed as well so to start off um fox animation studio was founded in 1994 in phoenix arizona and okay i will also clarify a lot of this is wikipedia because (laughs) i mean i think a lot of this is kind of touch and go in terms of what we do know but it seems like a lot of the reasons why phoenix arizona was chosen is because of like tax breaks yeah, and in right. terms of you know being able to do state of the art animation technology as well as have the people to basically you know fund help fund these products yeah. and have people that could actually animate and help with this. Well, and Bluth had been he had his own studio up until yes. Fox contracted him was, to like I head believe, up yeah, the it animation was, studio. I can't remember what it was called. It was originally I think Don Bluth Entertainment. Okay, yeah. It was uh, I think that was created in the early eighties. Yeah. That was a Irish American studio because it it was uh, stationed in Dublin. Mm-hmm. It became Sullivan Bluth Studios I think as time went on and it ended I think when it was. Um, uh, I think applied for bankruptcy. It was considered Sullivan Bluth Studios. Yeah, but and he basically shuttered it 
to move to Fox. Yes. Um, and I think he may have taken some like a lot of his staff with him mm-hmm. over to Fox. Because um, Don Bluth in the early 90s, basically to kind of set the scene before Fox Animation Studios is created, uh, Don Bluth and Gary Goldman, who are both great friends who met each other in the early 70s during their Disney era, mm-hmm. basically both left Disney at a certain point, both started helping each other make movies, whether it's Don Bluth directing solely and, and Gary Goldman producing, or sometimes they were doing dual direction, which is all three of these films have both Don Bluth mm-hmm. and Gary Goldman involved in some way. Bartok says it's just Don, but a lot of people, like IMDb says it's both of them. Yeah. So it just depends, but uh, Gary Goldman is involved in all three of these films, I think, just as much as Bluth is. And in the early 90s, there was a film that was made by Sullivan Bluth Studios called Thumbelina. Many of you out there might have some nostalgic tie to Thumbelina. <laughs> I have never seen this film. Me neither. But I've seen trailers, and of course, the Don Bluth style is very apparent right. in those trailers. And at the time when Thumbelina came out, it was a financial flop, didn't make its money back, ultimately led to the Sullivan Bluth Studios going for bankruptcy. And that, in that time period between Thumbelina's flop and the end of Sullivan Bluth Studios comes Bill Mechanic, who at the time was a then-chairman of 20th Century Fox. And at that time, his goal was to bring in Bluth and Goldman to basically build a studio from the ground up. <laughs> right. I believe they had they were willing to put at most $100 million into the studio yeah. <laughs> to basically compete against Disney at the height, at the midst of their Disney renaissance in right. the 90s. Right. So at the time, you know, 20th Century Fox had done production stuff in terms of they had produced and distributed animated films in the past. I believe they did like heavy metal, a lot of Ralph mm-hmm. Bakshi films and, you know, definitely that stuff that you wouldn't think of as 20th Century Fox. And a lot of it's because they didn't produce it or it create it in house. Yeah. It's all third party out of house kind of well, work. Like none of the major studios around that time were really, I mean, you, you know, Warner, had some animated shows yes but they weren't doing yes. like features on the level that disney was no and they and they tried i yeah. mean there are some warners in the 90s that like they try their best but ultimately like you can't really touch right disney and like i make sense that bill mechanic trying to figure out how to compete with disney you get the man that in the 80s at times beat disney at the box office from time yeah. to time with american tale and land before time and clearly they were thinking if we're going to have someone to compete with Disney, let's arguably get one of the most iconic Disney vets of like their second generation. Yeah. It's not a part of the so the 13 old men, is that what the uh, or 10 old men that were the original Disney animators? Uh yeah. So like he wasn't a part of that obviously because I don't think he worked on Snow White. <laughs> but um he uh he basically was I think the second maybe third generation of Disney animators. Mm-hmm. They were pretty prominent, and he was probably one of the most iconic to leave Disney and do his own thing. Probably the one thing that people think of for Disney vets that have gone on to be yeah. their own people, uh, except for Gary Goldman, who's kind of on that same mm-hmm. range in a way. And so Bill Mechanic basically goes, we're going to start the studio. We're going to go for it. We'll do it in Phoenix. And from that point forward, it is off to the races. And the first idea that both Goldman and Bluth have at the time is maybe an animated rendition of either King and I or My Fair Lady. <laughs> and then they both realized that it would be hard to really compete with the live-action versions that are so iconic, right. especially the yeah. Audrey Hepburn mm-hmm. version of My Fair Lady. 
And so at a certain point, they decided through just you know curiosity of just the real life stories surrounding the Romanov family, the Russian czars and like the massacre surrounding that family and thinking of interesting ideas yeah. to create into basically what it will end up being a Russian princess film. We get the first film in this trilogy, which is 1997's Anastasia, mm-hmm. which is it's a mix of an adaptation of the 1956 film of the same name, which has similar um, similar plot developments in terms of basically Ingrid Bergman, Yul Brenner. Basically, it's about, I think, the most iconic Anastasia impersonator. Mm-hmm. So in that film, it's pretty clear that she's an Anastasia impersonator or they kind of play with that. Right. Well, as in the animated film with the same name, it is push pretty clearly no this is the anastasia that yeah i mean is supposedly died in 1918 yes we like open the film with seeing how yes. this all happens and how she got mm-hmm. separated and then yeah the rest of the film we're following her we're basically i mean to, it's, to lay it's it all historical out, fan fiction yes anastasia is a russian princess fan fiction um, animated film which i do think to you know to their credit um i think at the time uh it wasn't fully known a hundred percent for a fact that Anastasia, um, the real life Anastasia, died. It was like still kind of a historical mystery of what happened to I her. I think and so. Yes. I think since since the movie, like in the last sometime in the last twenty years, it was confirmed, like through you know DNA tests or something. Mm-hmm. That oh, yep, Anastasia it definitely died. happened. How sad. <laughs> and yeah, so Anastasia is the first film in our trilogy. It is initially a much darker tale. Until they decide to really, I think they take elements of uh, Pygmalion to make it, um, at least, I mean, on Wikipedia. I think it says, like, it takes elements from different films to kind of make it more lighthearted, as well as basically realizing that if they want to do this story accurately, people are going to have a bad time. (laughs) Right. Because, I mean, it's, yeah, Russian history is largely depressing. Yeah. um, Especially stuff surrounding Rasputin mm-hmm. and all that. Who was already dead by the time that this massacre happens, I think, historically. Yeah, although I think it was, it basically was, you know, a lot of the upheaval that he caused and enacted yes. that kind of yeah. led to, to the fall of these figures and that th- sort of thing. I think they decided, because they decided that, you know, they didn't want to do a cartoon version of Lenin. They didn't want to use <laughs> right, Lenin right. In, in the film as like a, as yeah. the antagonist, and they saw a picture of Rasputin, and they were like, "Oh, he evil looks wizard. like he could be a D- Disney villain." Yeah, yeah, evil wizard, nice. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, I he's one of the best parts animation wise. I think in this For film, sure. I really enjoy I mean, his design because he's the only one who doesn't look kind of half rotoscoped half the time. Yes, <laughs> yes, which is something we'll talk about with all three of these films because yeah. most they all have that kind of situation. But yeah, Anastasia is a there's i'm trying to think of other ways to describe it other than it's a disney-esque film but to be well, honest I mean, it's it's got a lot in yeah, common with spade like spade a spade like, yeah it's, i mean beauty and the beast it yes. calls to mind a lot of that aesthetically mm-hmm. um and certainly tonally with it being kind of all surrounding royalty and it's kind of mm-hmm. got that cinderella element of like oh we've got to get you prepared to be a part of the royal family and yeah do all this training and dancing my guess yeah my guess is is that when you are at this point in career where it's just like you are noticing that disney's renaissance is still going on but ultimately there is a rumor or at least there there were rumors going about that like you know 
after Lion King, there's Pocahontas, and then there's Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. And then pretty much everything post-Lion King, while I do think do adequately well or doing very well, it's never to the point of Lion King numbers. So it almost felt like other studios were like, that might be a chance to kind of wiggle in there yeah. and take advantage of the fact that, like, you know, all the Disney Renaissance films are not, like, 10 out of 10 making a bajillion dollars <laughs> at its opening weekend. So, like, at that point, they might have thought, like, hey, from what we've heard of, like, other animation studios out there in terms of, like, you know, trying to compete against with Disney, there is no there's no princess film. Right. And it's like, you know, why not? Why don't we do a Disney thing, which is you get – you get composers, you get a composer and a lyric and lyricists that like, you know, either aware of Broadway or aware of the kind of the context right. of the narrative, which wildly enough, and I didn't know this until I did a little bit of research before we did this, the composer for Anastasia is David Newman, who is the son of Alfred Newman, who is the composer of the original <laughs> Anastasia uh, in nineteen fifty six. So that's something. Yeah. And then there's um I believe I think it's Lynn Ardens and Stephen Flaherty. Who are basically the lyricists for mm-hmm. both Anastasia and Bartok the Magnificent, which unfortunately the quality doesn't seem to uh, carry over in terms of the yeah. songwriting. Yeah. But they're both known for the Broadway hit Ragtime. And so they're doing a lot of the things that you would see Disney do at that time, thanks to the Disney Renaissance choices in the early, the late 80s, early 90s. And ultimately, what you get with Anastasia is, in my opinion, like. A really good, you know, re- somewhat kind of replacement for like, you know, if you're not having a Disney, if you're not getting a princess film from Disney in that same year, you're going to get an adequate version of it from a different company. And as well as yeah. like a different enough tone that it didn't feel like it was kind of solely harping on the Disney aesthetic. It clearly is in a lot of ways, because of course, like, you know, like I said before, Goldman and Bluth are Disney vets. They're right. aware of the Disney methods. They were a lot of the people that helped bring it into the modern era, at least in the 70s and the 80s, mm-hmm. or at least inspire a lot of people that go into the 80s. And clearly, well, and of course, the art style, there's a lot of bleed over. Yes, um, yes. Or commonality, I guess. Yeah. And I don't know. I really liked Anastasia. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. <laughs> Well, I'm glad. I thought it was okay. That's fine. I mean, um, I, again, like it's because this was more because uh, I owned this. I believe I had this on VHS and DVD growing up. Yeah. But this was more my sister's speed. Mm-hmm. This was more like I think my mom would know more of the songs or more know the stuff of like what's yeah. going on in the film than I did. Because like going into this, I was like, I don't remember the plot. I remember this. I remember that. I remember the looks Anastasia would make in the camera. Cause like, yeah. I think her face was on every poster and VHS and mm-hmm. gosh, they only, I think they only have like one good poster for this film. Cause I think the other ones I've yeah. seen are kind of rough. Um, but yeah, the story in this, I think is unique to this film in terms of like, I, mean, I it's think it's certainly like just in the fact that it's, you're taking kind of the Disney princess format or template, but making and tying it into, a, like... a real historical event. I mean, obviously, highly modified. Yeah. But, like, these are about real people whom tragedy befell. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's just... It is kind of fascinating just to look at it and be like, oh, I'm looking at uh, Russia from, like, 100 years ago. You know, mm-hmm. like, it, it's yeah. weird to think... It, it 
it feels markedly different because of mm-hmm. that and because you're not you know looking at this fantastical scene from a faraway land yeah. or whatever you know it's like this is just russia <laughs> this is just what the culture looks like and again i will clarify the film is adapting practically the 1956 film mm-hmm. in its own right yeah so it's not like it's a wholly original narrative but at the same time at least for an animated film of that time to have the film basically be about two hustlers who are trying to get out of st petersburg in the late 20s of yeah. post-russian revolution trying to basically um, trick a countess in believing that they found her dead granddaughter only to <laughs> backwards trip into the actual dead granddaughter yeah. and slowly realize that there might be more to this than just the ruse on top like of the love. fact. Yes, of course, love. Because it's a Disney princess film, yes. basically. So, like, you it's gotta a Fox have Animation a... Studios princess film. Thank you, thank you. It, they're only princess films. <laughs> <laughs> you have a good point. With a, you know... A lovely, you know, beautiful boy with a parted hairstyle. Yes. And you have Anastasia. I mean, again, you have Meg Ryan as Anastasia. You have John right. Cusack as Dimitri. You have Kirsten Dunst as young Anastasia. Yeah. And Lacey Chabert, who's from Mean Girls. Oh, and yeah. at the time. Yeah. She was the singing voice for little Anastasia. Oh, okay. Which yeah, was yeah. the one scene where she <laughs> sings the song with her, <laughs> with her grandma. But, yeah, it is um, – at least when you think of like a quote-unquote Disney ripoff, um, if that's what you would want to call it that, in a most cynical term, I feel like the story at least feels like it has a little bit more edge to mm-hmm. it than you would think of from like other films at the time that were trying to kind of harp the Disney style and yeah, vibe and feeling. Yeah. And like it is, it is, it was actually a lot of fun to just like watch them get her bit pulled into the ruse and then realize, like Dimitri realizing at one point, like, ah, oh, fuck. I actually found the woman that yeah. you know we all thought was dead, mm-hmm. and now I feel bad and have to figure that out. And again, the music I think is pretty solid. I like her, I like her Fox Animation Princess Studios Princess song. Like you know, where it's <laughs> I like that you're gonna just have to trip over that every, the rest of the episode. I it's I'm gonna you're hit welcome. face first every time. <laughs> but Journeys to the Past, I believe, is that song. I liked that. I think the only thing I don't like about that song in the film is the fact that the imagery is just her walking down a road the entire time. (laughs) There's kind of a lot of that in this movie. And I don't, you know, to some degree, I get they're limited by the fact that they are doing a somewhat more realistic setting. Oh, yes, yes. Um, But but it it is like, yeah, there's a little little lack in visual inventiveness, particularly Mm -hmm. during the musical sequences. It's also a little lack of something little green. And that's money. Yeah. So here's the Anastasia was a $53 million animated film. But a lot of things that you'll realize, you know, once we go through more animation studios as time goes on, especially compared to 2D DreamWorks, like to basically compete against Disney to an extent, there's either two ways to do it. Either one, you put Disney time and Disney money into films that I'm probably, if they don't do well, might kill your studio immediately. Right. Or you do smaller budgets, find a way to work around that, but still try to compete with Disney by maybe doing some more state-of-the-art technology by like a little thing. I don't know if anyone really knows out there, but it's I think it's called computer-generated imagery. I don't know if we'll ever see it again, yeah. but you certainly see it in Anastasia. Yeah. <laughs> the little things that are used of CGI in Anastasia have aged like milk that has been outside for like at least a month. <laughs> Which is, it's trying its best, and I understand why they use those, Yeah. why they use that, because again, it helps cut the corners in a way that doesn't feel cheap. Because technically, you are 
using state-of-the-art tech. And it's like at this point when Anastasia comes out, like I think Bugs Life is the same year. Yeah. So it's like Pixar is starting to come up on the rise and using wholly computer-generated. So it's like Bluth and Goldman are probably like, we want to keep the traditional animation style, but if we want to keep making movies like this and want to keep doing hand-drawn animation... We're to help ourselves out. Yeah, we're going to have to like play a little <laughs> bit and wiggle in here and there different things. And yeah. ultimately with Anastasia, it's like when you do the checkbox so checklist of like, uh, you know, the era of like, like it's almost like trying to compete with Disney Renaissance checklist film. Yeah. And it's like, uh-huh, you got this, uh, Disney elements, but they're just tweaked enough that it's not like a full Disney, like, you know, wipe. <laughs> yeah. You, but you still have the plucky animal sidekick. Right. Well, you, you have, have yeah, you have characters villain. that look templated yeah. off of Disney characters. You have an and, I yeah. Want song. Uh, right. You have, you know, fun musical numbers written by, you know, you know, either you know popular composers or at least Broadway lyricists and Broadway mm-hmm. composers. You have, you know, these beautiful moments of imagery that is just like you can clearly use in the trailers, and it kind of pops on screen, which I think Anastasia has a good amount of that, especially in the beginning with the flashback stuff. Mm-hmm. Like when the Romanoffs are like at the height of their power, there's some gorgeous imagery when it's like the dancing scene in the ballroom, and well, and. Uh... When, like, the first Rasputin song, when he's in limbo and he's yes. got all the bugs dancing around him. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I mean, the fact that Rasputin basically has Mr. Fantastic powers, but in a necromancy way. Yeah. Where it's like, it's I, I never thought I'd see in, like, a film like this, especially in the 90s, like, a someone animate, like, tendons elongating to make sure an arm doesn't fall, like, a hand yeah. falls off an arm. Yeah. But they do it. Yeah. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. Like, it's it's kind of a little wild. Yeah, again, like I mean, Rasputin is, like, the most interesting visual yes. element in the movie, at least character. Did design. you know who, uh, and Bartok, who was the little white, little white bad. Who looks like the Fern Gully character. Uh, is that Batty? Is that the Robin yeah, is that Williams? Is that yeah, Robin yeah. Williams' character? He looks very uh, similar to me. Who do you think was the first choice for Bartok? Don't uh, even look it up. Don't even look Robin it up. Robin Williams. Woody Allen. Nice try. <laughs> okay. Nice try. And you know why it was probably not Woody Allen? Uh, the reason why you think yeah. it's not Woody Allen. <laughs> okay. and, and, I, and I'm not talking about ants. I'm talking about the other thing yeah. that would have been. Yeah. But, yeah, and mm. instead of uh, Woody Allen, instead of I think there was two other options they were considering, Hank Azaria apparently got the job 10 minutes into his audition, ah. which I am going to say right now just to kind of like get the homework, just to get kind of like the homework in before we have to talk about Bartok's own film. Yeah. I don't understand. Don't understand why. I don't understand the appeal of what the approach was with his character. Yeah. I don't. I don't really, I never really figured out what his voice was. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of at times a little bit Russian, but other times it's almost like Southern. Yeah. You know, it's just weird. Again, I don't, I don't I remember Bartok as a character. I remember his look and design because mm-hmm. I think again, it's Bluth and Goldman. Their designs are very Disney inspired, but it's clearly the Bluth style yeah. in a lot of ways. Classic Bluth in a lot of ways in Goldman, and so clearly, like you know, Rasputin. Even I would say Anastasia. While I would say Dimitri and Anastasia are quote unquote the plainest looking, I still think their color palettes as well as like their outfits are really well designed and kind of make them memorable. If, Mm-hmm. Their faces are considered a pretty generic, but yeah, I mean, Bartok, while I love his design genuinely, I don't really, <laughs> every time he fucking spoke, 
Yeah. I was just so confused. It's like, this is the man that voices like half of the Simpsons at like the height of the Simpsons. <laughs> right. And like, I'm not saying you should do like, you know, you know, w- like Wiggum or like uh, definitely not Apu, but like at the time, <laughs> it's like, you're going to make him do this weird little voice that really doesn't make any sense. I mean, like. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, you know, a part of me wonders if like the voice was just his affectation that he brought to it and nobody Probably. nobody like tried to fine tune that or correct him because they were yes. like ah he's a fun little cute guy he's just gotta be a fun little cute guy yeah who cares what he sounds like and i bet they're also were like oh you're hank azaria like you're not like yes you are popular but you're not going to be the same rate as meg ryan or right. cusack and right. we have to hire people to be their singing voices yeah because they both don't sing which is fine again disney was doing that too I'm yeah. not trying to pull the. I'm not trying no, I mean, to pull the curtain, but yeah. like. And well, and speaking of, uh, you know, trying to do similar things to Disney to compete with Disney, um, Anya's singing voice is actually the same person, Liz Calloway, as Jasmine's singing voice. That's right. Anya. That's right. And she'd go on to do a bunch of other Disney stuff too, but that was kind of her biggest oh. casting before Anastasia. To clarify, yeah, it's Jasmine from the last two Aladdin films. I believe. Is I, it? Think, I think it's. I, I think because was... I, if I remember correctly, Leah Salonga is the Jasmine singing voice for the uh... original film, and uh, Liz Calloway is the voice as well, singing voice for Jasmine in Javar's Revenge. Oh, it's for, for Return of yeah. Jafar, which is a yeah. uh, which should be called subtitle Iago's New Groove, yeah. and then a uh, Prince of Thieves yeah, or King yeah. of Thieves, King of Thieves, and Return um, of Jafar. Yeah, and uh, yes, so of course they were. It, I wouldn't even call it double dipping. I think just making good choices. No, yeah, they were like, <laughs> like well, she knows how to. She do knows this. what she's doing. Yeah, yeah, and of course she's great at it. And uh, apparently they also like they got Meg Ryan on board the same way they got Robin Williams on board for Aladdin, where they basically just animated a bit that Meg Ryan did in live action. Right. And they're like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And I bet it was because again, <laughs> you see in this film because again you you they did this a lot in early Disney era, and I don't really think they do it a lot especially in the renaissance era Mm -hmm. but that is the uh, rotoscoping yeah which is basically if you don't know what rotoscope is in terms of animation is basically they film someone on a set doing the actions the motion of what they want the animated characters to do and then the animators take that footage and just draw over it yeah they just go frame by frame and and follow that mo- it's kind of like <laughs> the original manual motion capture yes pretty much um, they uh they and did blue loves that shit at, oh at least at this time well it's like snow white did that cinderella yeah. did that sleeping beauty like alice in wonderland like yeah there's a lot of like if you want to see a lot of cursed images of early disney you should look yeah. at just like those era of like the like the that like early the yeah. like 40s and 50s yeah yeah like the the picture reference for the rotoscoping it is mm-hmm. fascinating yeah. But at least with Anastasia, thankfully, I mean, with the rotoscoping, while it is noticeable, it's mainly noticeable if you're aware of, like, what that looks like. I think most people going into the film for the first time will be like, wow, that's incredibly fluid. Because yeah. it is. Because that's and just it, a regular person <laughs> doing right, those movements. Right. Well, and it, it's it's also, not just fully Yeah. Know, There's also, hand-drawn. like, they tend to do more of it in wider shots. I'm yes. assuming because yes. it would be hard to, like, detail out motions like that on small figures from a distance or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, It it gets weird for me when it's like, well, clearly you're not able to like rotoscope the facial expressions in up closer shots. Oh no. But then the bodies are still 
rotoscoped and it's like yeah why do your arms look like that but your face looks like a cartoon when it uh, looks like it's going like 60 frames per second what it really is it's yeah, just someone yeah, moving yeah. at a normal speed yeah i mean thankfully they they never decide to do rotoscoping on top of cgi backgrounds <laughs> so anyway i mean <laughs> we'll talk about that later yeah. but yeah i mean anastasia i think is really solid a lot of fun i wouldn't have been surprised if there's like an alternate reality where they made like, you know, Anastasia two maybe like if they were really trying to push it like they this kind of had the energy, if it wasn't for the fact that it is I think like you said historical fan fiction, they it had the energy that they could have done like, like a TV show or like a straight mm-hmm. to video actual sequel to this rather than what we actually got from this. But yeah, it it's just it's just a fun time when Anya takes on Stalin. Yes, yeah. I think that's really what I want. It's mm-hmm. like her to keep coming back to take on more uh, Russian, Russian leaders. Villains. Eventually, yeah. it's like Cyber Anya versus Vladimir Putin. Yes, yes, yeah. that's exactly what I think. Uh, I hope. Bluth... I think that's what Bluth wanted. Yes, but he I just wasn't that's... able to realize it because he was limited by the technology yeah. of his time. I, I swear, he probably did a Kickstarter about that <laughs> a while ago. <laughs> but yeah, Anastasia comes out in 1997. It wildly. Is not number one at the box office. It comes out in thanks like kind of Thanksgiving era. Do yeah. you know what was number one, Andy? We've actually covered this film. Nineteen ninety seven Thanksgiving. Yes. Yeah, uh, you'd be surprised. No, I don't. Mortal Kombat Annihilation was number one oh, that weekend. Wow. It the so second like the second the Mortal second Kombat one. Film. The second wow. one. You gotta understand. I think it was like the first weekend of Mortal Kombat Annihilation. So like it was still making the most money. It probably would in that yeah. first weekend. So, so that one does like seventeen million in its first weekend. And okay. Anastasia does okay. about fifteen. Yeah, but uh, Anastasia's whole run worldwide is about one hundred and forty million, mm-hmm. which so is damn near tripled its budget. Yeah. Which is to this day the highest grossing film Bluth has directed, mm-hmm. which I think is behind. I think American Tale is technically a second, and I then from that Land point Before forward. Time. No, be apparently I think Land Before Time. I think if it was super success, I don't think it was as successful as it was, you know, critically well received. Yeah. And also, eighty-four million. I mean, that's still really on a twelve million budget. That is incredible. But I think it's like compared to the amount of money that um, Anastasia and American Tail did compared to their budgets. But yeah, so Anastasia comes out. You know, from this point forward, Fox Animation Studio has a bunch of creatives running different ideas that they're thinking about doing after you know, like doing their after their second film. Maybe they have an idea like they even have like if I remember, kind of a dark-ish fantasy trilogy idea that oh. some creator comes up with at one point and ultimately what happens is their next film is two years later while they're trying to figure out what they want to do next um at the time the head of fox animation studios because um, it was because while bill mechanic was a co-founder of yeah. the company he was not the pre like one of the presidents yeah because he was a chairman for the greater yes. fox and yes was probably busy doing other stuff and so at the time this second film comes out, the straight-to-video uh, prequel to Anastasia. He says, apparently, that out of all the ideas that they had for a straight-to-video kind of release, or at least their next project that involved anything Anastasia-related, they said this was the best idea. Yeah. Right. And that leads to 1999's Bartok the Magnificent, <laughs> which is a, I mean... It is. You kind of heard it already. Yeah. It is a straight-to-video <laughs> prequel that is surrounding a cartoon bat that we both think is fairly useless in the film that apparently made him so popular that he got his own spinoff film. Yeah, I th- 
feel like, I mean, obviously I was not like aware of my surroundings in 1997 to know what the cultural consensus on bar talk was in Anastasia. But like, I get the impression that there was a massive overestimation on Fox's part of just how popular or how critical Bartok was to the success of oh, An- yeah. Anastasia to I w- then go and be like, yeah, if we're going to do more Anastasia, it better be this guy. Yeah, because I, th- I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that, again, I think 97 is also the same year Hunchback comes out. Okay, yeah. I don't believe they beat Hunchback numbers, yeah. but I do think probably critically, while, you know, Hunchback has a bigger budget. Uh-huh. I think people maybe liked Anastasia a little bit more just in terms of, like, appeal. Yeah. Like, I think Ebert had, like, Ebert nearly gave it a four out of four, and, like, Siskel gave it, like, a three out of four because, like, it wasn't historically accurate. (laughs) So, like, that's kind of, I think, what I wonder how he felt about Anastasia. (laughs) No, that's what I meant. Like, with Anastasia, that's what Hunchback. No, yeah. So, like, Siskel and Ebert really liked Anastasia. I think a lot of people who saw Anastasia enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, and Hunchback has always been considered to be like a the black sheep of like the Disney Renaissance era. Yeah, I mean so much so that I'm going to be honest, I have never seen it all the way through until last year. Hunchback? Yeah, I had never yeah. seen it, and it's really and good. Hunchback made two hundred million more dollars, yeah. more than Anastasia. See, in my brain, I thought it was in the three hundreds, but it again, three hundred. But again, I think in Disney money, it was like it's not enough. Yeah. Oh, we I mean, it made three hundred and twenty-five million. I just meant it was two hundred million more than what Anastasia meant. Yeah. No, for um, sure. But the, I think the year prior. But it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it seems like you're comparing apples to oranges yeah. in terms of like what success is for each other. What I can see Fox being like, we got a nibble. Yeah. Right. People are we're on we're on a little bit of the pulse. We and can now figure we run out. with and now Bartok. We do Bartok the Magnificent, which is a, what everybody wants. Yeah, a film that is like, again. I say it's technically a prequel, but it never says what timeline it is. Yeah. Like time frame wise, it, it has virtually no tie to Anastasia at all. No. Also, Russia looks like uh, discount Looney Tunes. The colors are not. It doesn't look realistic or grounded no, in any yeah. way. It's just kind of random. Yeah. Old fantasy town. And I will also I would like to elaborate as well because like clearly Bartok is very Iago coded mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and I will say that you know. Aladdin was an incredibly popular film, and even then, they couldn't basically make a Iago film. They basically had to make a re- called it Return of Jafar, but it's really an Iago. Yeah, they couldn't film. call it an Iago yeah. film because they knew it wouldn't make anything. Yeah, and with Bartok, it's like in Anastasia as a film, Bartok is an accomplice to a family massacre, right? And a completely up a, a revolutionary upheaval of a royal family. Yeah. And so we are getting a side film. We're getting a we're getting a we're getting a prequel side story about a bat that helped lead a massacre, right, in so, and like right. in in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, like it, like because like it's it's so wild to think that like this is the character we're gonna get a side story. Yeah. To, to be fair, I don't think any of the other characters really warrant that. <laughs> no. But like, it's just weird to think that this character who is a villain. Even though he is like a, he's kind of like a conscientious observer in, in like yeah, the latter half like, of Anastasia. He's the cute guy who just kind of gets roped along with he's, the bad guy. He's like, I don't think you should be doing this, Rasputin. Yeah. And it's like, why the fuck are you here? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, other than to try to make jokes. Right. We lead to Bartok the Magnificent being barely over an hour. Uh-huh. Feels like it's nearly two hours at times. Um, being about Bartok basically trying to save a young 
like a prince, a young Tsar. Yeah, a different Russian Tsar. prince. Yeah. yeah, that I maybe is tied to Anastasia's family. It does not matter. Yeah, it's if it was fan fiction in Anastasia, it's full blown fantasy at this point. Yeah, because it's basically Bartok going to save the young Tsar from Baba Yaga having to do trials and tests for Baba Yaga. All entirely in, like, a fantasy land. And, and yeah, in a fantasy land that is, like, I will admit, like, I like some of the design choices, but yeah. at the same time, I'm also like, why the fuck is this there's a no, prequel yeah. to Anastasia? Well, and there's no sense of place either. Yeah. It's like, like he goes and finds Baba Yaga, the witch, and then... In the Iron Forest, I believe is what they yeah, call it. Yeah, and then she just keeps sending him on these quests to go fetch things, Yeah. And he just goes to these random, like, totally different locales that just look otherworldly and, and unrelated and disconnected. And there's no sense of, like, oh, well, he's, like, crossing the country or whatever. You know, yeah. It's just, like, he's just in a, He opens – it's like the Crash Bandicoot games. You go in a door and you're in a totally different world. And you come out and you go in a different door. And you're, you know, yeah, I like, don't, yeah, and it's just, like, the, yeah, the villains or, like, the enemies that he fights or the people that he helps – just at a certain point, even animation-wise, I don't know what they are. Yeah, like, there's a lot of vague kind of just Bluthian like, um, creature character. going to really take some people back to the past when I say the name French Stewart because yeah. he is a character in this film that speaks entirely in gibberish, <laughs> and he looks like... He looks like a villain from a Zelda game, and I don't know even what... like I, It just looks yeah. like it's not it's in almost- a... In a I mean, film that was again a prequel to a 1920s Russian, yeah, like that's well, that's yeah. the era to, of to uh, give it a very contemporary frame of reference. It's like an AI amalgamation of like random fantasy Disney characters, yes, like Disney monsters. And I wouldn't even say that monster is the most confusing. The most confusing is a pink snake oh, called yeah. Pilaf, who's Pilaf. voiced by Jennifer Tilly, and she is apparently a snake. I think. The fact, though, that she has the face of Chippendale. Right. From the. She has a face of a chipmunk. She has a body of a snake. And the first time you see her animated with Bartok, she animates what looks like internal plungers from inside herself Mm -hmm. to basically have makeshift arms because they couldn't think of a way to have her grab him. Like in a normal snake way, whatever that would look like. Yeah, she just it like is, sprouts these armatures. She's a mon- and... she's a monstrosity, and I don't understand why. Yeah, I don't understand why she looks like that. Jennifer Tilly again. I mean, again, the cast here is pretty much just doing whatever they're asked to do. Yeah, you have you have Hank Azaria back as Bartok. You have Kelsey Grammer, who played a vat a completely different <laughs> character in Anastasia. He's back. He, he plays Dimitri. He plays uh, Dimitri's sidekick in an Anastasia like. He plays yeah. this man named Vladimir, who's this um, who used to work for the royal family and now helps Dimitri and also is really into thick women. That is like one of the only other things you know about him, <laughs> because like his love, his love interest is just a thick woman. That's yeah, all you really yeah. know of her. That's all you need. And then in this one, he plays not a he doesn't play a man named Vladimir. He plays a <laughs> an Zosie. actor an actor bear named Zosie the yeah. Bear. Who is yeah? Who is this aspiring like prim and actor. proper British bear who pretends to be a wild animal for yeah. for entertainment? It was purposes. funny because at a certain point I was just because I was watching this with uh, my roommate and our um, our friend Adam, 
who is just like he's I don't think he's ever seen Anastasia or if he has it's been like years. He was just like I'm just morbidly curious and he was having a bad time yeah. watching it. And I was just like, gee, it's kind of wild to think at a certain point that like this film seems like it got off the ground because it's like half the Simpsons cast is the lead and Frasier is the set is like the supporting character. Yeah. And then even Adam was like, wait, no, I mean he's Sideshow Bob, so technically they're both like big Simpsons characters <laughs> yeah. to a degree. And it's like, yeah, so you basically get like almost trying to get Simpsons legacy to like get people to like get excited yeah. because it's also like Zozy the bear is animated incredibly weirdly. Like I don't under his body moves like a human's, not like a bear's. His head is like a chimp's head until <laughs> you get to his snout, which is almost like reptilian. <laughs> like it's weird. Like it's like his, his, yeah. his snout is supposed to look like a bear snout. But the way it moves, the way he talks, it just feels like it's like it should be a crocodile moving and talking. <laughs> and also, he he looks more like the Bigfoot Sasquatch character from a Goofy movie yeah. than he looks like a bear. Yeah. Like, he looks like it's almost like just off from, like, the Baloo Jungle Book design to be like, ooh, take it back, put it back. I don't like this. Yeah, he also, like, after his initial reveal, because the first time you see him, he's in his, like, kind of wild animal bear form for yeah, the crowd. Because, yeah, because... And then he mm-hmm. takes off his costume after the show and pulls a mustache out of his face. Yes. And then has yeah. a mustache for the rest of the movie. And it's like, where were you hiding the mustache? The whole thing, too, about which is the other... Because you're probably wondering, oh my gosh, Logan, you forgot to mention, what is Bartok's arc in his own film? It, well, does. his big arc is that he is basically a swindler who pretends to be a hero magician... And Zozie the Bear pretends to be monster, a monster that he defeats when he goes from town to yeah, town. Yeah, he's his foil. In yeah, the show, but they basically, yeah, they work together, and ultimately, a um, an aide to the young Czar uh, basically hires Bartok, basically just to get him to get killed because Bartok, I guess, is the only thing that could reveal the fact that she stole the Czar. Yeah, and doesn't want anyone to know. And so, like, basically Bartok has to become a true hero and learn how to become one to truly save the Tsar and um, thwart, is it Ludmilla? Ludmilla, yeah. Ludmilla, played by Catherine Catherine. O'Hara, who is um, Kevin McAllister's mom in Home Alone, as well as um, the mother in Schitt's Creek. Yep. Who, I mean, every clip I see of her in that show, it's like, I'm so happy you're still doing (laughs) things. I'm glad you're here. Um, but like, what other characters? What other actors are in? It? Oh, Tim Curry. Yeah, That's Tim what I was Curry thinking. plays a bit role. He plays like the skull that talk, the like he, skull passageway that yes, give gives I would, riddles. To... I would argue he's the funniest character just because it's uh, yeah. Tim Curry. Yeah, just like yeah, because it's basically it's a scary skull that gives you math questions. Yeah, like trick math questions, and like the first time he shows up, he does like. Almost like if he's trying to do like a cave of wonders thing. Yeah. And then as soon as he goes into the riddle, he just does like a regular Tim Curry voice. And it's just like such a difference. It's like, oh, that's funny. Ha ha. Yeah. You get a point there, Bartok. And then it pretty much loses it almost immediately once Bartok speaks. But yeah, yeah, this is in fact a straight to video prequel about a adorable sidekick that really doesn't deserve his own film. Yeah. We have we. I mean, this is not this is not it's, the first time this has happened. Yeah, like it. it, it I mean, it, ha- it, it has it, a lot of similar vibes to Return of Jafar. Um, yes, would just you... in terms of like pointlessness. <laughs> here's here's the thing, because when I was watching Bartok, I wanted to make that comparison, but at the same time, I don't fully remember 
watching Return of Jafar. I know we did because we did the Aladdin trilogy. Right, yeah. I don't remember anything from Return of Jafar. Would you rather watch that or this? Um, I Probably that just because yeah. of the characters and locales. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they're just... I like Aladdin, and it would yeah. remind me of you Aladdin. You see, everybody, so. in case Andy says he's not into brand loyalty, please take this clip out of context. <laughs> <laughs> Good, but I would also agree. Yeah. The fact that I do like those characters, and also I like Gilbert Gottfried. Yes. And he's, rest in he's peace. He's a much more fun better. villain yeah. sidekick than Bartok. And is. he's not even really doing much different than like what he would just do in general. He's in just terms being, a comedic doing voice. himself, yeah. Yeah, and so... Bartok at a certain point is pretty like you see these wild designs like Baba Yaga's hut is a hut with legs and I mean like right. giant chicken legs almost and well, it's a really it's cool like weird design standing or floating out in this abyss of yeah swamp and industrial waste mm-hmm. and it's just like where are we this very abstract it's place the, it's separated the iron forest. from time and space apparently it's between St. Petersburg and wherever the f- fuck Bartok is I yeah. don't know where it is yeah but um yeah Tim Curry's uh the skull is what I think his character's name is yeah. is entirely CG and it works well enough it's but fine. it's still CG but it, hilariously enough the worst CG I think in the entire film is the fact that Bartok and Zozi's cart is entirely CGI <laughs> and it just looks horrible every time it shows up yeah. and it's just like oh man I know you gotta cut corners because I right. don't I think if anything if it if this film had more than 12 months of production like if it was just a year I would be shocked because mm-hmm. I think yeah because I because like this clearly feels like well they're trying to figure out what they want their next full feature to be yeah it's just like hey guys I need you to do this really fast and just go yeah. for it. And it, you can tell because, again, Anastasia has, even though it's, you would say the budget is lower than like the Disney films at the time, it still has some incredible lighting, has some good cinematography at times, and has, you know, voice, like big voice actors involved, and like the action sequences are grandiose. The CG is a little, mm-hmm. it's more apparent in Anastasia, but at least it looks. I think a little less shitty in Anastasia. It's still noticeable, but it's more, uh, it's more thoughtfully well. used. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as a Bartok, it's like it's like well, we gotta cut this. We gotta asset here. Yeah. It's like oh, let's just cut that corner. It doesn't matter. It's Bartok the magnificent. Though yeah. I was the most truly the most iconic moment in Bartok because it's just absolutely wild, and it was the thing that like when I was looking up on Letterboxd out of curiosity, like what people were saying, it was the one thing that people would not stop bringing up. And that is Ludmilla's song where she turns into a dragon. Right. Because in that song, she's basically what happens in the film is that she drinks this potion who's supposed to show your true self. Yeah. Uh, Baba Yaga gives it to Bartok to help him, but inadvertently it does help him. Yeah. But it also means it turns Ludmilla into a giant dragon. Yeah. And so at a certain point while she's singing her villain song, it's like the last song in the film mm-hmm. and she gets yeah. her villain song. Yeah. She um, turns into a dragon, very apparently, and also becomes... It's a very thick dragon who is very suggestive. I can't... Uh, what, 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 do you want well, to describe it more? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's just... Ludmilla is this... Um, her body type is very similar to, like... Uh, Yisma. Yes. In, that's a good um, that's a good Emperor's comparison. Group. So very like toothpicky, lanky, kind of pointy, angular, um, and uh perky, uh one might say. And then yes, as she transforms, it's like one body part at a time, just kind of yeah. inflates into like a dragon f- part. The first thing that shows up is her tail. And her tail 
is yeah. not like it's not small. It looks like it's the big. It looks like tail, yeah. It yeah. looks like she's going to the bathroom and <laughs> a tail came out and it's like halfway there. Like yeah. it's it yeah. is kind of like we and it's also extremely thick. Yeah, and her, it's like weird. Her tail like, like flops out on the floor and then she like throws her hands out and her hands like inflate into these big yes. fat dragon hands and then her chest erupts and, and here's the thing yeah i'm not we're not this massive voluptuous <laughs> pair of boobs because that's the thing is we're the dragon itself does not have a bust we are not saying no. that don bluth gave a dragon but in the breasts. midst of the transformation it makes her it boobs inflate yeah it, in the midst of transformation the dragon body in pushes in the shirt in a way that looks like giant one well, dragon it, I boobs. Think for the sake and of it's, like this trying is a... to make the transformation happen without making like I think inadvertently and in trying to make it look less sexual they made it look more sexual because when her boobs grow they keep her top intact yes. while the rest of her clothes are like disappearing as oh, yes. this transformation happens she's also and, like and... sitting on so many men <laughs> she's basically she's killing like men who are in the torture chamber for so yeah. long and it seems like every time she moves her tail or just like does a little jump, it's just smashing people. Right. And it's just like, I I mean, again, I think looking now back at Anastasia, I could feel a little horniness in terms of like, you know, Vlad's love interest. Maybe Bluth has a certain type, but then watching Bar sure. talk, it's like, you yeah. he needs to be hit with the he horny needs to be stick. Controlled, yeah. It's like Bluth, settle down. This Bonk is a straight. There's a straight. This is a straight to video film about a cartoon bat that has an indiscernible accent yeah you need to tone down the dragon uh the dragon sexuality i don't know why that is like i sexy it's a fleeting moment but it's weird it, it is a fleeting moment but it's also like i can't believe i'm like 50 you really I'm, didn't have to do that I'm like, you went out of your way to animate it that way i'm like fi- you're like we're 58 minutes in and this is what you're going to do yeah and then after that there's a dragon sequence where it's like there's a chase scene with Bartok and the dragon. We also get, I believe that I noticed, the only moment of rotoscoping in the entire film, which is basically a man running with buckets of water. Ah. And then he's just like, whoa! And like he's yeah. just so animated, and then he runs the other way. And he runs the other way, but clearly they didn't have time to get that guy who was running in the rotoscope to turn a certain way. So like the the image itself almost like warps to a certain... Yeah. It, it is... Yeah. They really, honestly, commend. I commend the team that got this done because it's like clearly the budget is like more than halved. Yeah, and they have to do their absolute best with what they're given. And even like the music is not as good as in the Anastasia. I do think there's some little, there's some good quirkiness that uh, Flaherty and Arden's add to it. That is just like okay, that's that's fun. I'm glad you tried that. Not saying it works, but. Uh, let me see. Is it Arden's? Uh, yeah, Aaron's. Thank you. Lynn Aaron's is the collaborator and also lyricist and composer with Stephen uh, Flaherty. Flaherty. Yeah, they're both lyricists for both films, and they do their best. Yeah. That's uh, and that's the unfortunate truth about this too. Is like this is where the <laughs> well, the film I think did well for a home video release. This is where the rise of Fox Animation Studios starts to become the the middling of fox animation studios yeah and now it's really time now that we've talked about the middling of fox animation studios it's really time to talk about the true fall because while they had so many different ideas they were excited to really push and even though like you know cg animation was really getting more and more popular but that didn't really deter them fully 
they were still hopeful to the point where they had like eight, you know, projects in development or at least in a certain at a certain point of development to really think of like we could do this next almost to like sell to 20th Century Fox. Right. Ultimately, that comes to practically nothing for them. When um, in 1998, 1999, I believe around the time they were f- they're finishing Bartok, um, 20th Century Fox comes to Don Bluth and Gary Goldman and basically say, hey, we have a sci-fi idea that was originally supposed to be a live action <laughs> yeah. film. However, the budget would be too high and we don't think we can actually do it with the technology we have today. But I think you guys can mm-hmm. with a lesser budget. <laughs> and right. so they're like, oh. You know, Don Bluth and Gary Goldman are like, oh, you know what? Like, this is not up our wheelhouse. Like, this is something completely different than what we usually do. But we've always wanted to dabble in sci-fi. Yeah. Always wanted to try a different audience because it's more a film that's, like, garnered towards, like, teenage boys. Yeah, well, and Like, teenagers and, like, darker thoughts and images. When Bluth and uh, Goldman, like, came to Fox, part of what they wanted to do was, you know okay, we'll compete with Disney how we can, but also maybe let's, like, instead of trying to just be Disney, let's do our try own and thing. do our own thing. They wanted to make an edgier movie. Yes. Something a little bit, like you said, marketed more towards teens or even adults. It was kind of what was sold um, to them to yeah. a degree that and they so could do sci-fi that. sci-fi makes kind of a logical, you know, mm-hmm. step toward that. Um, so I get the appeal of it from them as creators, too. But unfortunately, yeah. that film ends up being 2000's Titan A.E., the genuine true fall of Fox Animation Studios. Because while Don Bluth and Gary Goldman are phenomenal animators and directors, and they're iconic in their own ways, unfortunately, Titan A.E. is such a mess in almost every aspect yeah. that when I tell you that it took them over... I think it was 13 months. Was it like it was the turnaround was insane. It was think about again, when it comes to Disney films to try to push a Disney film out in like 12 to 12 to 18 months is insane. Yeah. You have to have years of work and so much changes in the animation process, as well as the writing process in terms of what producers want, what animators want. Like there needs to be a time frame where you can have those changes and not feel like, oh my gosh, we're so screwed. Right. Tiny AE does not have that time frame. By the time they are basically given the film, it like the option to do the film, it is like late 98, early 99, yeah. and the film needs to be out by June of 2000. Yeah, they were given 19 months, like they, a year and a half. And they were running, and they were trying to get it done as fast as possible, and unfortunately... The film led to the studio having like 300 layoffs. They yeah. had to do, they basically had to like do outside studios. They had to get contract work from third parties to help them finish the film. Right. Including a little studio we'll talk about a little bit later that ultimately grew from the ashes of Fox Animation Studio in its own way. But Tainai is a action packed sci-fi mystery with Matt Damon, Drew Barrymore, Bill Pullman, Nathan Lane, uh, (laughs) Janine Garofalo. I mean, you have Ron Perlman Perlman for, I think, a total of five minutes. And what you have here is a film that I am not, I am not kidding any of you out there. I have, 
it's been less than a week since we watched it together. This is the first uh, full transparency. We watched this together first because we wanted to get it out of the way. Yeah. Because everything we saw critically was saying that this was going to be a bad time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with films like this, a lot of the times a bad time could also just be ahead of its time. It could also be uh, just unfortunate. It could be so bad it's good. It could be so bad it's good. It could also be like just unfortunate working conditions lead to a film that has so much to offer and becomes a cult classic because of it. Yeah, but that it unfortunately work gets work as a whole. Yeah, yeah it gets ruined in the <laughs> edit or just time frame. That's not that. No. Time AE is forgettable to the worst degree. It is bad mm-hmm. <laughs> for the most part. It is It is a film that if you saw this, if you know for a fact you saw this out there and you don't remember anything about it, it is not because of time. I think your brain, as a defense mechanism, pushed it out of your brain. <laughs> pushed it out of your just consciousness because it is just, it seems so weirdly aimless. Yeah, well, it's this It's this. It weird... All, it also it, feels like it's a shittier version of Treasure Planet and that film oh, doesn't come out until yeah. like 2004. Right. So um, like, but yeah, it's this weird confluence of trying to force a you know um, a different tone into a format that's not you know not that not that animation remotely can't be for adults, but no, for it, sure, <clears throat> they're they're taking I think a structure of a children's animated film of the '90s and trying to just kind of paint over it to make it adult. Um, yeah and on top of that it's i mean it's a confluence of tonal issues like that and also um a mixture of studio interference and like neglect i mean it's just a lack of faith from fox you know they're they pulled people you know laid people off before this movie was even done they pulled money from the marketing like i said earlier yeah it's just like fox was i mean by this point of course by 2000 um Disney had kind of fully taken off with 3D. You know, yeah. we were in Pixar land. Two Toy Story movies had been made. Multiple other Pixar movies. Um, at, at this point, I think the next Disney film to come out. I mean, it's a year after Tarzan has come yeah, out, yeah. which Tarzan uses some state of the art CG in yeah. there. No, I in mean, an yeah, not, not, not that Disney wasn't still doing 2D no, no, stuff, no. but like, but clearly you, there yeah. was this kind of shift. Um, yes, in in what studios wanted to make and what people wanted to see in terms of animation. And I think what you get with Titan AE is a film that, you know, was conceived as one thing. And then the studio got worried that it wasn't going to be this new hot thing that everybody else is doing. And so they tried to force it to be that. And so you get this weird flaccid mixture of like two or three different things. None, none of them very well done and none of them very original. Yeah, this this the aesthetic feels like less bleak alien design. Yeah, like I mean yeah. Ridley Scott's that that universe like There's it has that energy in there. little bit, especially like it almost seemed like the attempt to do that with the main alien force that I've completely forgotten. But they're like electric the dredge. Monsters. The dredge. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that's they're so scary they didn't need an E. <laughs> Unless is it D R E D R E J J. I think. Is it really? Yeah. Oh I my gosh, it's... that's even worse than Oh, I just just one J. D R E J. Okay. Well, like yeah, it is dredge. There's every part of this feels like it's not a phase mom in like almost every way, but like uh, yeah. in the most 
weirdly pathetic way because it's like the music that are needle dropped into this film are like <laughs> I have yeah, I didn't look to see I if don't... those songs were written for the film. I don't think they are. Okay, but the weird thing is it's it's full of needle drops that are of these really specific artists that you've probably never heard of in in any other anything else. Mm-hmm. Um but also feel like really really dated to the time like yes it's incredibly yes. late 90s 2000s oh my god edge rock edge synth um i'll i'll put this you know I'll, frosted tips type shit i'll put this on the podcast but it's not just, stuff you know it's not like fucking yeah. creed you know it's it's <laughs> yeah, some ex- euro pop band except you know? for the one what is what is can you take me higher that is Creed. I was yeah, gonna yeah, say, except yeah. for the one Creed song, yeah. that is used for the but isn't that the trailer? It's used for the trailer. I don't think but, it's in the but movie. But they still use it to sell the film. Right, like, right. This is this is the audio scape we're trying to sell the teenage boys in yeah. two thousand. Yeah. And I'll throw this out there in terms of like, Tainai has such um, Treasure Planet energy years prior, and I'm not even saying each one like inspired the other because by the time Treasure Planet was made. The, the directors that are involved in Treasure Planet basically wanted to get that, wanted to make that since like the 80s. So that's a film that like is its own thing that like, again, not trying to say they harped on one another, but it just so happens they both have, you know, these lead teenage, like kind of late young adults that are just like edgy and kind these of wayward cool. teens. Yes, yeah. that have like, you know, lost their father in some way, shape, or form and like they have parted hair and they don't care about feelings. That's stupid. That's, yeah. that's cool this. Guys. Yeah. I If you gave me a gun, I totally know how to shoot it. That kind of energy to <laughs> them and you know, what the difference is though is of course Treasure Planet is Disney. So there's a lot and also the directors involved had, I think, a lot more wiggle room. Treasure Planet mm-hmm. is a passion project, while Titan AE is an obligation. Yeah. And with Titan AE, it made me really appreciate how, while I'm not a big fan of the Treasure Planet needle drops that were made for that film, um, I at least appreciate that and don't utterly despise <laughs> the needle drops like I do in Titan AE. Yeah. The Titan AE needle drops are just bad. Sorry to the artists that Which is a bummer to Titan AE, yeah. but your music sucks. Uh, the mu- <laughs> it's, well, it, even if it doesn't suck, and I couldn't even tell because when I think of the music, I just think it's poorly integrated in the film it itself. Is, yeah. Like, it just is wild to see that film and be like, oh, this is what... Like, the first needle drop, I think all three of us, because Adam watched this with us, like, we all looked at each other and we're like, oh, boy. Yeah. This is a little rough, but yeah, I mean, the big issue, though, I would say, while the story is not good, and the needle drops are bad, and I would even say the cast themselves, while talented, um, are clearly not voice actors, or at least very young in their voice acting careers in some way, shape, or form, they are still learning how to do voice acting. Um, Honestly, the worst part about Titan A.E. that I think makes it difficult to watch most times is how it mixes different types of animation. Yeah. There is a shot in this film that is the one thing I remember the most because when I saw it, it almost made me feel like I wanted to throw up. There is a shot that is supposed to be like a forced oneer in an animation sense where someone's coming through a door, making a turn, doing another turn and then getting into like a captain's chair because they're like on a cat like they're basically on right, the bridge. Right. And um it's basically supposed to feel like a camera crane is coming back and following the guy all the way through 
in an animation sense, you could do that probably all in 2D and just look it would a little be insanely off. difficult. Be too. very difficult. And then you can do that in CG. I'm definitely yeah. you've definitely seen that in full CG, but when you watch a rotoscoped two-dimensional character try to do that on a fully CG background with some fully CG objects that clearly are not running at the same frame per second right. as the rotoscope animation. It is, to call it distracting is an understatement. It just destroys <laughs> any kind of momentum or goodness that comes from those scenes that all that is like mashing yeah. itself in. Well, and there's... It is, there is a lot of corner cutting because they that's all they could do. Yeah, and it's I mean, a bummer. There's a lot of it's so much of the film is this hybrid of basically three different animation styles, like yeah. traditional 2D, rotoscoping, and 3D. And in a lot of shots, they're doing all three at once. Yes, you know, you'll see yes. a character like a single figure who is half rotoscoped and half hand animated. I mean, obviously, both of those are hand animation, but you know, yes. like animated from drawings or sketches. You know, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, they're moving on a 3D background or they're moving a 3D object. And, like, all three of those things are moving in different – like, you can – you can, your eyes can detect the differences in how they're moving. And it yes. just really breaks the experience. Any And yeah, the immersion, if there was any ever there to begin with, with a story yeah. that is very, very weak and has characters that are pretty one-note, pretty weak, and – ultimately have aliens that are like very like some are very similar looking to one another like nathan lane's character is kind of like hyena human like yeah. hyena like man-esque yeah while janine garofalo's character is like basically yeah like a double need kangaroo yeah. alien has like quadruple leg joints yeah but they have like the same face yeah well it's all like and don bluth side character face which sucks because it's like I like that when it doesn't have to stand right next to one another. Like it's just like <laughs> well, have to force it. Yeah, and... it's it's you know the main characters are all these humans and they're drawn fairly realistically. Like arguably maybe even less stylishly than Anastasia. Yeah, like, well, yeah, Drew Barrymore's character just looks like how um, Elizabeth Banks's Lego Movie character looks, but it's supposed <laughs> yeah. to be unironic. Yeah, and, and like Bill more Pullman. True to life. Yeah, Bill Pullman's a less douchey looking version of like the villain from atlantis so that yeah. means he's like less memorable yeah and then yeah matt damon's lead character Looks who like is matt damon yeah who is not luke skywalker or not sci-fi protagonist number 872 kale like, something yeah kale tucker kale tucker yeah. uh he's i remember just, his name because yeah. i spent like probably 10 minutes of the movie looking up rule 34 of kale tucker just to see how much there <laughs> just was just to see how many people have wasted their time trying to keep amount. titan ae alive there's some foul shit out there there's, it's it's really bad but yeah. i mean everything about this just unfortunately does not work and it's a bummer because it's like going into watching this i was hoping this was going to be like the i uh, it's dated in a lot of places but at least it still has a heart to it and I mean, I think the heart, whatever heart is in this film, is just like in the animation and the struggle to try to get this out the door. Yeah, like well, it's, I mean, it's, it's all the passion it's... and determination to be like, this is not going to be an eighty million dollar film that's just on the shelf. We need to yeah. get this out. I don't. It's like it's like Bluth, Goldman, whoever else was involved, to be like, I don't give a fuck. 
if they're going to pull back the market again. We just need to get this out. It needs to be out. Yeah. I'm sick of having this not be out. <laughs> and it's like, well, and it's, they got it out. And it's out. <laughs> it's it's the film ends up being dated in two ways. I mean, dated in the sense of like, yes, the stylish, the style flourishes and the music choices and mm-hmm. the aesthetic is very, okay, this is very 2000s, late 90s, edge lordship. On top of that, it's dated in the sense that this feels like the death of 2D animation happening, <laughs> like right in front of our eyes. You know, it's yeah. that, it's that shift where studios are like in the late '90s, early 2000s, they're like, "Yeah, we're done with 2D. We're gonna we're gonna move full into CG." Because, I mean, ultimately, especially in the latter half of this movie, a lot of the full CG or half CG sequences were basically forced in there by the studio. They were like, "We like." that all these other movies are coming out with full CG. We want you to put more CG in this movie. Yeah. Put more 3D animated in there. Put more I mean, CG the, spaceships. Uh, put more dredge in we there. We talked about this with 2D DreamWorks. that's cool now. Yeah. And even at this point, Disney was doing the same thing. Where yeah. it's like, you look at Emperor's New Groove. I mean, Lilo and Stitch, Atlantis. Specifically, Atlantis and Lilo and Stitch as early examples. Because like... I don't think Emperor's. I think Emperor's New Groove might be fully two D. And actually, no, because isn't are the barrels when they go down the river? Is that? I, I think I some. Don't know. I don't remember. Basically, like Atlantis and Lilo and Stitch show off the most. Like this is the most three D I think I've seen in like a Disney film in a while. They do, and but they still just use it as like for pieces. Yes. In the scene. Yes. Whereas this is like full scenes of CGI with yeah. a few 2d characters floating but on it. <laughs> while those, yeah. While those films do a, um, well, Lilo and Stitch at least does an Emerald job being like really well liked and is enough of a brand that they continue making more Lilo and Stitch content afterwards. Mm-hmm. At the same time that those films are coming out, fucking Disney's dinosaur comes out and just trumps like pretty much all of their domestic yeah. openings. Like all three of those films, domestic openings, I don't even think comes close to yeah. like dinosaur because dinosaur, it's like, it's full 3d. It's, 3D it's what cool, people baby. wanted. People are fascinated and, by it. And if Disney, if Disney has to feel like, well, we got to do this now. Like, Fox Animation Studios is screwed. Yeah, <laughs> like, Fox is looking over at what Disney's writing on their paper and is like, okay, let's do some of that. They say that it says Bluth, put it in there. It says Pixar, but it has three dollar signs next to Pixar and <laughs> we only have one dollar sign. Yeah. So you better get it done. And it just is an absolute bummer that this film just comes out and yeah. like a week or two after this film comes out in June of two thousand, the studio is defunct. Yep. Like, it's just dead. And yeah, since well they, then... Yeah, I mean, they fired, like, 300 people right before the film finished. Which is just a great decision. Uh, really, yeah. just... I mean, there's such thing as cutting costs and also shooting your own foot at the same time. That <laughs> feels like that's the case. Cutting your losses, I guess, in yeah. a moment. But, you know, at the same time, it is, it is a, also weirdly a bummer looking back at the projects that Fox Animation Studios wanted because two of those projects that were in development ultimately got picked up by other studios and became decent hits or giant hits in certain cases. Because one of the ideas that was actually designed by a certain certain, uh, creative that Fox at one point was like, hey, you know what? Like, this could work at Fox Animation Studios, but I really think if you go over to this little studio called Blue Sky... (laughs) Yeah we could do your film Ice Age in full 3D yeah, and 
six was it five films later right like it was like it's the thing that put blue sky on the map and it was originally a fox animation studios idea (laughs) the other film that is like surprising that it was originally a fox animation studios pitch because it's based off of a graphic novel the same name but dreamworks picked up the over the hedge yeah like over the hedge is like an idea that like fox animation studios was first thinking about and then dreamworks ultimately did in the mid-2000s yeah which i would say is on one of the weaker films in DreamWorks's uh, catalog, but it still, I think, did pretty well yeah. for them. And so it's weird to look at all the cool ideas and like stuff where it's like you can see that, like, gosh, if Fox Animation Studios could have had the budget and the time that studios, animation studios deserve to really get yeah. classics out, there were some really cool ideas there that would really have been nice to see. And then there's also Over the Hedge and Nice Age where it's like, oh, I have seen those, and they're in full 3D. Yeah, yeah. So clearly this was dead on arrival, right? And which is just a bummer because it's like, again, Bluth and Goldman are very talented directors and producers and animators who have been in the game by 2000 more than 30 years yeah. almost. Like it is, it is a bummer to see these two giants, like these really cool – iconic animators in their own rights just basically at a certain point like if you look up what they've done recently it's like i think the last thing they did together was like the video game i ninja oh shit i think they did like the cinematics for that they were like the directors for that <laughs> like that's like the last thing i think they did together mm-hmm. and that's like 2004 2005 yeah. like it is it was not meant to like do this episode to be a bummer but it is kind of wild like yeah because yeah. again we went into this also to the fact that it's like this trilogy is like in total a little over four hours. It has some kind of like, you know, po- popular, you know, animated film as well as like, you know, a maybe a undisclosed classic in Titan AE, which we were horribly wrong about. <laughs> but ultimately with Fox Animation Studios, it is very odd in its own right because it is again at this point in Don Bluth and Gary Goldman's career. It is like at this point, I think the third studio to give them a shot that ultimately like they were given kind like semi carte blanche to start something and then they kind of have the rug rug pulled out from under them yes it's just like time and time again studios not really (laughs) putting their faith in them yeah studios realizing that there is more to an animation studio than a lead creative of course but there also is time and money and you know realizing that the expectation should be let the creatives do what they want to do yeah and hopefully there's a way where they can stay in budget stay on time and there's a good middle ground for all that yeah but yeah that's the rise and fall of fox animation studios you know it's it's funny sometimes like to look at what look at these you know when we're when we're talking about trilogies and and studios and stuff from many many years past it's fun to kind of look at like the context of the time and like what people were saying at the time oh yeah um and when i was looking up just stuff about fox animation studios i found um ign's article reporting on the closing of fox animation studio by a guy named brian linder um just for credit's sake um and uh he quotes um, Fox Animation president Chris Melodondri at the time, and I thought this was fun just because of our tie to this film. Uh, he said, putting a company man spin on things, it's certainly disappointing news for everyone in Phoenix, but we are not out of the animation business. 
clearly from our investment in Blue Sky and the production of Monkey Bone coming up soon. You gotta be fucking um, kidding his, me. His kind of positive spin on things is we have Monkey Bone in the pipeline, which um, for for our most dutiful listeners um, will sound familiar because we intended to make mm-hmm. a Monkey Bone episode, which was never, we, we did record it um, and we had the wonderful Austin Webster on to talk about it, but yeah. we due to technical issues, we just weren't able to publish that. But yes. it's just funny to us because we're familiar with Monkey Bone how massive of a flop that film was yeah it's Um, it's it's like it's saying like hey i know it sucks that we accidentally shot ourselves in the foot but don't worry once we step on this piece of glass everyone's (laughs) really gonna see the success come through yeah yeah. it is that is wild i didn't even think about monkey bone being even involved well i guess you know because that wasn't that wasn't part of fox animation studios no 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 but it was a fox semi-animation projects and that I is guess fair this chris yeah. melodondry guy was the president of fox animation yes. not specifically mm-hmm. animation studios yeah. but fox animation in general but yeah that is the rise and fall of fox animation studios we wanted to start off with something that was truly odd and something that you know we yeah. love talking about animation trilogies and we'll certainly be talking and like you know reprising some trilogies talking about you know new releases coming out this week as well as or this month. Oh gosh, this, this year. year. Thank you. <laughs> and arguably, you know, we'll have more animation trilogies down the pipeline because there's certainly plenty of oddities surrounding animation trilogies. Yeah. But our next trilogy is not going to be that. Our next trilogy is going to tie into a little thing I think Andy and I have been aware of, and that's and that's love. <laughs> I'm not saying that because we're in love with each other. Well, and I'm not. He he can say whatever he wants. I'm not going to make put words in his mouth, but. You know, we just thought that, you know, the last, I think last year, we didn't really have a Valentine's Day tie yeah, other than Magic Mike. Yeah. I think I we mean, did I Magic guess Mike. That was kind of yeah. our Valentine's tie. I think one for the ladies, I think is what yeah, we called it back yeah. then. But this Valentine's Day, uh, a little bit before, February 10th, we are going to have our first romance trilogy in a while. And that is a romance trilogy that we both have been wanting to do for a bit. And thought it would be for the right time and also in terms of accessibility, be able to talk about it. And thankfully, we can. And for February 10th, we're going to be doing Wong Kar Wai's Love Trilogy, which is 1990s Days of Being Wild, 2000s In the Mood for Love, and 2004's 2046. Yeah, Wong Kar Wai, one of the most acclaimed Chinese filmmakers, uh, maybe ever, especially when it comes to romance, yeah, especially and drama. Romance, that's kind of his forte. Um, yeah, in the movie, these these three are kind of, you know, they a yeah. a one of the most uh, um, notable bodies or chunks of his work, basically. Yeah. and there are characters that are through lines throughout right, the entire right. trilogy, as well as the fact that the middle film, in the mood for love, is considered to be. One of the best films ever made is one of the best yeah. romance films yeah. ever made. So we've both been wanting to do this because, yeah, because we and know. I, I I haven't seen any of them. Neither have I. Okay. Yeah. I'm excited to watch his stuff and to finally get, you know, introduced to Wong Kar Wai. And we're excited to see how everyone else feels about it when we talk about it. But until February 10th, when we do Wong Kar Wai's Love Trilogy, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.